Major funding for Backstory is provided by an anonymous donor, the National Endowment for the Humanities, the University of Virginia, the Joseph and Robert Cornell Memorial Foundation, and the Arthur Vining Davis Foundations. From Virginia Humanities, this is Backstory. Welcome to Backstory, the show that explains the history behind today's headlines. I'm Joanne Freeman. And I'm Brian Bella. If you're new to the podcast, we're all historians, and each week we explore the history of one topic that's been in the news. On today's show, we're looking at a topic that can pretty much make or break a news story, photography. Now, in the 21st century, we often use photographs as a kind of shorthand for the truth. And certainly anybody who has spent any time on the internet has probably heard the immortal phrase, pics or it didn't happen. But that certainly wasn't always the case. In the 19th century, as photography became widespread, Americans had to figure out what it was a photograph showed them. Could a photograph show a larger truth about human nature? Could they even be trusted to show any kind of truth at all? So today on the show, we're going to look at stories of Americans working to understand what photographs showed them. We'll follow the career of one of the 19th century's most famous spirit photographers. Plus, we'll look at how Midwestern towns sold themselves through some truly spectacular photographs of produce. But first, many historians have a document, a letter, a diary, or even an image that changes the way they see their own research. For Martha Sandweiss, the documents she keeps coming back to are a small collection of daguerreotypes taken in the 1840s. By then, formal daguerreotype portraits taken in private studios were relatively common. But the images Sandweiss found were something very different. They were outdoor scenes, some showing American soldiers marching through the streets in Mexico during the Mexican-American War. They first came to her attention in the 1980s, under some pretty unusual circumstances. Since then, Sandweiss says she's never been able to get them out of her mind. It's 1981, and I'm a new and very young photography curator at the Eamon Carter Museum in Fort Worth, Texas. I received a call from a book dealer friend who said, have you heard the news? Another three dozen or so Mexican war daguerreotypes have just been discovered. And I said, well, where are they? Tell me about them. And I called the person who had the daguerreotypes in their possession and asked if he could send them to me on approval. He said, no. I said, could I come to your house and look at them? He said, no. I said, could I meet you in the nearest big city and look at them with you? No. So we agreed to meet at Dulles Airport. I felt a little bit like a CIA spy here. I flew to Dulles Airport and met a man who was carrying a large brown grocery bag. And inside were 38 daguerreotype portraits and views, all related to the Mexican-American War. Daguerreotypes are conventionally packaged in a little case with protective glass over their surface. These had no protective case. Instead, he had wrapped each one in a paper towel. A fingerprint on the surface of a daguerreotype will leave a mark forever. 
And every time the seller jostled the bag, I imagined a bit of the daguerreotype image rubbing off against those abrasive paper towels. The daguerreotype process was invented in France in 1839. A daguerrean camera doesn't look that different than other 19th century cameras, but what you put in it was a specially prepared sheet of silver-plated copper that had a light-sensitive silver solution on its surface. You remove the lens cap, light hits your subject, light enters the camera and impresses itself upon the surface of the specially prepared plate. Remove it from the camera, you process it, and that's it. Every daguerreotype is unique. That is, there is no negative for it. You can't make multiple copies from a negative. So when you hold a daguerreotype in your hand, you are holding in your hand something that was physically in the presence of the subject of that image. They're like magic. In 1927, a lucky collector found a dozen daguerreotypes related to the Mexican-American War. These were the first that had been found. And one of them was published in 1938 in an important book about the history of photography. And it's an amazing image. It shows General John Wool, accompanied as always by his military retainers, pausing during a march down a street in occupied Saltillo, Mexico. A Mexican onlooker watches through a window and a dog stops to watch from the sidewalk. It's an extraordinary image. And for anyone interested in the history of photography, these were like the Holy Grail. And the war was a kind of marvel of new technology. There were steamships, there were telegraph wires, and that meant that not only could the war be fought in a different way, it could be reported in a different way. And they're not only the world's first photographs of war, they are, I think, perhaps the world's earliest examples of photojournalism. The very first time a photographer recorded something for its newsworthy value. During the Daguerrean era, about 95% of all daguerreotypes made were portraits. They were made under very tightly controlled studio conditions. Outdoor views, however, are much, much more rare, and that's what's so special about this collection. We see soldiers standing in the streets. We see soldiers with rifles on the tops of buildings. We see artillery arrayed across the plain near the battlefield of Buena Vista. I really wanted to come up with the name of the world's earliest photojournalist. But after years, years of tracking down every lead about every photographer floating around the war zones of northern Mexico in 1847, I really couldn't say with any certainty who made these. And even more frustrating, I couldn't figure out what impact these images had. But at the time, it seemed like no one ever saw them. I mean, to us, they're precious eyewitness views of a key historical event. But in the late 1840s, no one cared. Really, this is, this is a, a moment that a lot of historians face in their work. Sometimes you can't figure out what you want to figure out. The key to unraveling the problem and finding my story came from a, one small, stark daguerreotype in the collection. It's about three inches high, four inches wide, identified with a paper label on the back as 
the burial site of the son of Henry Clay in Mexico. Let me describe it. An open grave with a wooden cross at its head sits in the foreground of the image, and bare tree branches cast their shadows on the adobe vault just behind it, built to hold another coffin. It's really a bleak scene, and we know what it is only by the paper label glued to the back. But that information is really useful to a historian because Henry Clay Jr., the son of the Kentucky statesman, we know that he was killed at the Battle of Buena Vista on February 23rd, 1847. And so with that, we know precisely where our mysterious photographer was, when. And Clay's death was covered everywhere in the American newspapers. It spawned poetry. It spawned reflections on the meaning of a patriotic death. And yet no one saw the daguerreotype. But what people did see, and this was the key to unraveling everything, was a highly popular print, a colored lithograph made by the great printmakers Courier and Ives. And this image looks so different. It shows the dying clay front and center in the arms of a colleague. A riderless steed stands behind them. American soldiers in the background pursue the fleeing Mexicans. And Clay speaks with outstretched arm, presumably saying what were widely reported to be his final words. I will not live. Tell my men to fight on and return my pistols to my father. The print has a narrative story. It compresses time. It has a past. He got wounded. It has a present. He's dying and speaking these words. And it has a future because the title is The Death of Henry Clay Jr. He will die. And in contrast, what is that daguerreotype? It was utterly incapable of conveying the kind of patriotic rhetoric that encoded with meaning the death of this young American in a far-off war. And that was really an aha moment for me, looking at the very narrative print next to this tiny little daguerreotype. Photography was a new medium in 1847. And Americans simply did not know how to read or value photographic images. That would have to be a learned behavior. It's always a challenge for a historian to escape their own way of thinking about the world or their own way of thinking about evidence and try to imagine how people at the time experienced an event or experienced a document about that event. I was thrilled when I found these daguerreotypes. Really, I got goosebumps when I held these little plates in my hand. I thought this plate was there, watching the soldiers on the street, watching the artillery on the battlefield of Buena Vista, watching General Wool march down an occupied street. Of course, I imagined that people in the 1840s felt that way too. And it took me a very long time to realize that they didn't, that my ideas about photography, my ideas about photojournalism, my deep, deep sense that we understand war and violence better through photography simply wasn't a current idea in the middle of the 19th century. This is a case that taught me that photographs can be valuable as primary sources in and of themselves. They not only document events, they, they can, as in this case, lead me to understand much bigger questions about cultural history. Martha Sandweiss is a historian at Princeton University and the author of 
Print the Legend, Photography and the American West. One day in 1861, amateur photographer William Mumler sat down to take a self-portrait in his Boston studio. Mumler later claimed that when he went to develop the image, he found quite the surprise. Because he discovered that though he had been alone in the room where the picture was taken, he was not alone in the photograph. Standing next to him uh, was a picture of a ghost. This is writer Peter Manso. He says that Mumler had miraculously captured a hazy image of a young woman hovering above his shoulders. He first thought it was something of a joke, and he showed it to people saying, look at this strange mistake I have made. But then he became convinced that he had, in fact, captured the image of a lingering spirit in his photo studio. The photographer believed that the phantasmic figure was a cousin who had died 12 years earlier. The picture and the story it told soon found a ready audience. In the Civil War era, spiritualism, a belief that the living could communicate with the dead, was sweeping the nation. And spiritualists were hungry for evidence of their beliefs. They thought that this new technology of photography was leading to a new revelation, a new moment in the interaction between the world of the living and the world of the dead. Mumler and his wife Hannah saw a lucrative opportunity and began selling spirit photographs. Their most famous customer was Mary Todd Lincoln, who emerged from their studio with a portrait of her murdered husband protectively resting his hands on her shoulders. So you could visit the Mumler studio the same way you would visit any portrait studio at the time. You would sit in a well-appointed room, and when you had your photograph given to you, you might see, if you were lucky, the image of a deceased loved one lingering behind you, a ghost floating in the air very often. So the Mumlers became the toast of spiritualist Boston, and for a time, they were selling people the solace that they needed, this connection to loved ones who were gone. I don't want to badmouth another New England industry, but was this a little like whale watching? Where, <laughs> you know, you kind of pay your money, you go out to see the whales, and... You know, sometimes they show up and sometimes they don't. I mean, could people be asked to come back again and again and again in the hope that the spirit would show up? It was precisely like whale watching in the sense that Mumler would never guarantee the ghosts would appear in the photographs. He would say that he had no control over the spirit world. He did not know why some spirits chose to appear his camera before his camera and some did not. He could not determine in advance which spirits would arrive to be in your photograph. And so certainly people who were dissatisfied but still believed in the possibility mm -hmm. of spirit photography, they would come back. Uh, but very often, people did receive what they wanted to. Uh, they received images of their late spouses or very often of their children who had died too young. So Mumler, again, was, was filling this real need, and he was giving those who believed in him exactly what they paid for. Do you have any specific cases of believers, and can you give us a sense of what they thought they had found? The Mumler story unfolds during the Civil War, and many of the people uh, who visited Mumler were haunted uh, by their own particular feelings of personal loss, but often by their role that they played within the war. Mm -hmm. So in Boston, there was a man named Alvin Adams. He was the founder of a company called Adams Express. And he began as just a courier service, but he soon became the leading 
shipper of bodies uh, in both the North and the South, shipping the casualties of war. Oh, they, would, they would be shipped in special Adams express caskets. And Adams felt the, the weight of all these young men yeah. whose deaths he was profiting from. And when he visited Mumler, he wanted to be relieved of that feeling of guilt. And he was given a spirit photograph showing a young man uh, who he believed to be one of these casualties. And in receiving this image, he did seem to receive some kind of relief. I gather that most of the people who went to the Mumlers were satisfied customers, or at least believing customers. Initially, they were believers in spiritualism, but they were also skeptics who wanted to see if it was what people were claiming it would be. And soon the skeptics began to outcrowd the believers in the Mumler's studio. So many people came hoping to be the ones to reveal the fraud uh, that Mumler felt endlessly investigated by, by these uh, photographers who thought that this was someone abusing their pure art. Mm -hmm. uh, and it also became popular among spiritualists. Uh, the spiritualists in Boston actually believed that spirit photography was possible, but something about the mumblers eventually just didn't smell right. And they decided that though spirit photography may be possible in the future, this fellow William, William Mumler was not in fact doing it. He and why was, did he they, was, what were they smelling? Well, as it happens in Boston, it began to become known that there, there were many ghosts depicted in William Mumler's photographs who were, in fact, alive and well and walking the streets of Boston. <laughs> <laughs> so when you began to recognize Rumors the ghosts, of their death were premature. <laughs> Exactly right. And you would find that you would find uh, the same faces of spirits on multiple people's spirit photographs, uh, people of no relation, and they would be looking at the same supposedly dead aunt. And when it began to be known that there were living people being used as ghosts in Mumler's images, that did put an end to one part of their career in Boston. Uh, they had fewer people coming to sit in their studio, but they at that point expanded such that they offered ghost photographs by mail. Uh, you could send them an image of yourself and a lost loved one, and they would use their mediumistic powers to recreate an image uh, of both the living and the dead and send it back to you. Did the mummers ever get in trouble for this? The mumblers eventually needed to pick up stakes in Boston, and they needed to find a new field in which to sell their wares. So they moved down to New York City in uh, 1868, and Mumler set up shop again, uh, set up a shop on Broadway, where there were more than 200 portrait photographers working at the time. So in some ways, he fit right in, but he was the only one offering spirit photographs. So he immediately made a name for himself in New York City. Uh, but that unfortunately also drew the attention of the law. Uh, so the mayor of the city at the time, A. Oakley Hall, made it a personal mission of his to crack down on small-time swindlers. And he saw Mumler as <laughs> He must as, as have been one. a busy man. <laughs> he was at the time. And he had a... Um, he had the... The city marshal, his his personal investigator, a uh, man named Marshall Tooker, he put 
took her on the case investigating Mumler. Uh, the, the marshal of the city of New York goes to Mumler's studio in disguise using a fake name and demands to have spirit photographs taken. When he is given the photographs, he decides that now he, he has caught Mumler red-handed. He arrests Mumler and sends him to the wonderfully named city court of New York uh, called the Tombs at the time. Oh, yeah, I know and, the Tombs. <laughs> and Mumler is um, made to face trial uh, in New York City, and it becomes the trial of the century at the time, because not only was one petty swindler being put on trial, but all of spiritualism, this idea that you could communicate with the dead, that you could see the dead to to really settle this matter once and for all. And what was the evidence? Well, the evidence, as far as the prosecution was concerned, was that it was it was apparent that uh, that every photograph Mumler took was evidence against him because this simply was not possible. Their star witness ended up being P.T. Barnum. Uh, they decided to bring in Barnum because they thought here is the world's preeminent expert on humbug, and, and <laughs> well, we'll bring we'll bring in Barnum to show uh, that Mumler is just one example of humbug. And in fact, Barnum had. Uh, in his American museum in New York, in New York City, he for several years had shown Mumler images in his gallery of humbug, the great humbugs of the world. He considered <laughs> spirit photography to be one of them. So Barnum uh, testified against uh, William Mumler to great fanfare. The newspapers, of course, loved it at the time because the the trial had already been a circus, and then here here comes the ringmaster to to make it official. But Mumler's defense attorneys response to this was, well, prove it. Prove that it is not possible for, t- for photography to sure. do this. We have seen throughout the 19th century, they would claim, uh, all the many marvels of technology. People scoffed at the telegraph. People scoffed at electricity. And now look at what these things are able to do. Who is to say, Mumler's attorneys argued, that photography, this marvel of technology, could not see the dead? could not have sight beyond human sight. And it ended up being a very persuasive argument. Well, how did things end? <laughs> the prosecution uh, mounted a, a strong, def- a strong uh, case against William Mumler, uh, but ultimately the judge had to admit that there was not the evidence to show how William Mumler had done this. The prosecution brought in a parade of expert photographers who said, if I was to create spirit photographs, this is the way I would do it. And they would give a number of theories, a number of techniques they would use. But then each one of them had to admit, I did not see Mumler do any of these things. And so we cannot know. <laughs> we cannot know how these spirits appeared in his photographs. Uh, so Mumler was acquitted. Mumler was acquitted. And he uh, soon left New York and went back to Boston, where he continued to take spirit photographs uh, off and on for the rest of his life. Okay. So all our listeners now want to know, because we have you, Peter, not P.T. Barnum, how do you do it? It remains something of a mystery. Uh, there are certainly experts in photography, uh, experts in, in um, 19th century photographic techniques who can show how they would, do- would have done it, just as those experts in, at, who testified at the trial can sh- suggested how they would do it. But no one knows precisely how Mumler did it, in fact. He was able to, through some some kind of sleight of hand, he was able to perform some kind of double exposure on his glass plates uh, without being detected in in doing so. So he uh, certainly was um, 
perhaps not spiritually gifted, but technically adept with his with the photographic arts, enough so that he was able to fool uh, the experts of the day and to create this ongoing mystery. What does this tell us about this particular moment in the history of photography? Well, when I began writing Mumler's story, it, it seemed just this quaint moment in, in 19th century history. But the more I began to investigate the story, the more it seemed to have some resonance with the world we are in now. Um, this world in which radical changes in technology um, produce these challenges to human perception such that we are unable to know if we are looking at fact or fiction. Uh, what was happening at this moment of the intersection of the technology of photography and spiritualism seems to have some resonance to me with where we are now in this in our digital age, where we are encountering constantly uh, upgraded and uh, remade technologies. And we, too, are unable to look at an image and really know what we're looking at. And to me, this reminds me that it's not simply the case that those who believed in William Mumler were more gullible or they were less savvy at in, uh, interrogators of images than we are. In fact, they were at precisely the same moment we are in where technology promises so much and yet the questions that we have about human existence, about what comes next, they remain. And we inevitably use those new technologies to ask those questions and to find new answers. Peter Manso is the author of The Apparitionists, a tale of phantoms, fraud, photography, and the man who captured Lincoln's ghost. You might need to rub your eyes after looking at the postcards produced by the photographer Alfred Stanley Johnson. Starting around 1908, Johnson turned his photographer's studio in Wampen, Wisconsin, into a magician's workshop. There he produced images of vegetables and animals blown up into a scale rarely seen outside fairyland. In Johnson's tall-tailed postcards, as they were known, corn cobs are like tree trunks and geese are the size of horses. Historian and radio producer Erica Janik is an aficionado of Johnson's work. I'm looking at an image of three adult women, and then there's a little girl, and they're pulling these giant carrots out of the ground. They're almost like mini palm trees. They're all much taller than the, the three women, and it, it looks like it might take all four of them to actually get these big carrots out of the ground. I think that someone receiving one of these postcards would smile, and uh, I think they would be in on the joke. I do wonder if, you know, if I got one in the mail at that time, if it was 1912 and I opened my mailbox and saw one of these, I think I would definitely do a double take because it would be something that I hadn't seen before. And, you know, maybe because I hadn't seen a picture or an image or a moving image of any of these places before, you know, I might for a second think, 
Oh, maybe that is how things really are there. A lot of these images have to do with fruits and vegetables. A few of them have uh, livestock in them. Uh, another favorite of mine are cows leaping over the roads. You find others that involve men fishing with enormous fish. You know, there's a guy with a wheelbarrow that has an enormous onion in it, and the onion is bigger than the guy and the wheelbarrow. They really are kind of, as the name implies, a, a tall tale, folk tale image. That's part of what makes them so charming and so fun to look at is that they relate to a lot of stories we might have read or heard about as a child. And then you look at these images and even though they're unbelievable in some ways, maybe it's because I just grew up reading stories like James and the Giant Peach or something. They, they also seem like maybe they could be real. A lot of towns uh, really liked these tall tale postcards because it was a way to encourage people to come to their town and hopefully to settle. There were these ideas about agricultural abundance, kind of this myths around farming that were, you know, really prevalent in American culture. You find most of these postcards being made for towns that are in the Midwest and in the West because they're really hoping that they can get more people to settle in their town because... That's how you make a town. You need people to come there. Uh, so they start kind of distributing these postcards to say, if you come here, your carrots are going to be huge. All a little bit tongue-in-cheek, and I'm sure people realize that. But by the same token, often a lot of these places were really great farming communities. So while you might not grow a carrot that's nine feet long and requires four people to pull out of the ground, you still probably could have a, a pretty good farming life if you moved to some of these places. We actually don't know all that much about Alfred Stanley Johnson Jr. Um, we do know that he produced more than 100 of these. He didn't invent the idea of tall tale postcards, but he really made it his own. He took over his father's photography business in Waupon, Wisconsin in about the 1890s, and he started experimenting with tall tale postcards around 1908. So he already knew how to do photography, but it was really kind of his experimentation over the years that led to all of these tall tale postcards, and he really built on the form. The first ones that he did were a little bit static, just someone kind of holding a position and then there was a large something put on top of them. But as the years go on, he really becomes much more artistic and you see a lot of movement in these images. So he's constantly working on, on his technique. All that we really know about how he put these photographs together is that he would take a background image, he would develop that, and then he would take a close-up of something, um, a large fruit or vegetable, um, and then he would develop that, cut it out, lay it on top of the background image, and then take another photo. Um, he often used his friends and family in these photos. There's actually a few in the collections of the Wisconsin Historical Society that kind of show a before and after. There's one of... Um, his kids and some of the neighbor kids, and they're holding a large cardboard cutout. Um, and so you can see the wide photo that he took there. And then in the next image, you see that they're actually, that cardboard cutout has been replaced by a slice of watermelon that is like the size of a canoe. 
this is how he did all of the images. And and when I give talks, actually, to people, especially students, none of them can believe that this is actually how this photographic process was done. Because, you know, we're so used to, like, the digital manipulation of photos that someone could actually do this and do it so believably and so artistically uh, in the 1910s. I think that um, when people see these images, they're just delighted by them. Um, I tend to show them to people whenever I can because I think that they're so fun and so amazing. When you consider what time period they were made, people just can't believe it. Even with all of the manipulative tools that are available today for us to do, these images are still really artistic. This required real skill. I think even actually if you were trying to do this in Photoshop, This would still take uh, quite a bit of skill and experience to make something look as good and realistic as these images actually do. I think it's um, hard to believe if you haven't seen the images, uh, how realistic they actually look. I mean, they are fantastic. Again, I haven't seen a nine foot carrot. Maybe it's out there. Um, But by the same token, when I look at this image of the women pulling the carrots, I'm like, it looks real. Like, I can imagine that actually being there. It doesn't look like fake carrots and uh, fake women. <laughs> you know, there's there's a real artistic sensibility to this that I think um, continues to impress people who see them today. Historian and radio producer Erica Janik helped us tell that story. We have some of those tall tale postcards on our website, backstoryradio.org, but for the full range of agricultural hyperabundance, Check out the website of our friends at the Wisconsin Historical Society at wisconsinhistory.org. That's going to do it for us today, but you can keep the conversation going online. Let us know what you thought of the episode or ask us your questions about history. You'll find us at backstoryradio.org or send an email to backstory at virginia.edu. We're also on Facebook and Twitter at Backstory Radio. Whatever you do, don't be a stranger. This episode of Backstory was produced by David Stenhouse, Nina Ernest, Emily Gaddock, and Ramona Martinez. Jamal Milner is our technical director, Diana Williams is our digital editor, and Joey Thompson is our researcher. Additional help came from Anjali Bishash, Sam Blumstein, Hannah Cho, Emma Gregg, and Gabriel Hunter Chang. Our theme song was written by Nick Thorburn. Other music in this episode came from Ketza, Poddington Bear, and Jazar. And as always, thanks to the Johns Hopkins Studios in Baltimore. Backstory is produced at Virginia Humanities. Major support is provided by an anonymous donor, the National Endowment for the Humanities, the Provost's Office at the University of Virginia, the Joseph and Robert Cornell Memorial Foundation, and the Arthur Vining Davis Foundations. Additional support is provided by the Tomato Fund, cultivating fresh ideas in the arts, the humanities, and the environment. Brian Ballow is Professor of History at the University of Virginia. Ed Ayers is Professor of the Humanities and President Emeritus of the University of Richmond. Joanne Freeman is Professor of History and American Studies at Yale University. Nathan Connolly is the Herbert Baxter Adams Associate Professor of History at the Johns Hopkins University. Backstory was created by Andrew Wyndham for Virginia Humanities. <laughs>